You are listening to Higher Ground with me, John Graff. I am a partner in the higher ed and litigation practice groups at Hirsch Roberts Weinstein in Boston, Massachusetts. And it is my pleasure today, as it is every time we do this, to serve as your Higher Ground host. So it's early in 2021, but the global challenges impacting higher ed are stacking up and we're in for a challenging year after having come off an extremely difficult one. Therefore, it's only fitting that we talk about some leadership characteristics uh, that are going to be necessary for higher ed leaders to carry us through 2021. Uh, Leaders, you know you're up against some really tough challenges here. Um, You still have to deal with COVID in 2021. You have a flood of social justice and political issues unfolding in an environment that demands, it's not asking you, it's demanding that you pick a side. Whether you actually acquiesce to the demand or not is up to you, but nevertheless, the the demand has been made and you will have to take a position even with respect to the demand. And it's all happening in faster than real time over social media. Now, as of about a day ago, I guess, from the New York Times, uh, you're under fire from the French government for allowing, whether it's true or not, a cancel culture to evolve and control what started out as a campus dialogue and now according to this article or i should say according to the french government has morphed into control of a global dialogue that is now making it difficult for the french government to govern so what's going to distinguish your ability to lead through this and what's going to carry a campus community through as well i would submit to you that it is three things it is optimism it is resilience and it is risk-taking leadership By example, a risk-taking leadership that is marked by a kindness and a sensitivity to healing, to bringing people together. So a note on optimism. You see, we're hardwired for it when we are born into the world. It's the source of our survival instinct when you think about it. It's our belief that things can and will be better moment to moment, hour to hour, day to day, week to week, month to month, year to year for a lifetime. Optimism when we're hungry is what makes us know we will find food. Optimism when we are sick is what makes us believe we can get well. Optimism when we are sad is what makes us know we will find joy again one day. Optimism is what lets us take risks because we know that if we fail, we'll get up again. Without optimism, I would submit to you we have nothing. Without optimism, We're really just robots. Now, I always say that higher ed is a microcosm of the world. It's a model that reflects the tremendous power and spirit of optimism in young people and adults the world over. The world over. It's a reflection of the belief in the value of improvement of oneself, of one's society, and yes, of one's world. It is a system, an institution built upon the belief that if we learn, if we teach, if we commune, if we fail, if we struggle together, we're working toward a point where things can and will get better for us as a species. Without optimism, there really is no point. Why learn? Why teach, right? Without optimism, education just becomes something to do for the sake of doing it. It's not a means to an end. It becomes the end unto itself. And I would submit to you a pretty expensive end at that. 
Without optimism, learning is the acquisition of knowledge simply for its own sake. And while I love to learn and I love the idea of learning and I love the idea of hitting milestones in an education just for the sake of hitting them, I can go climb a mountain, which I also love to do, and I can get that same satisfaction for about $50,000 a year less. It is the optimism that acquiring knowledge and sharing it with others will lead to something bigger than ourselves, something bigger than the individual. I would suggest optimism is a necessary element of education, as is resilience. Last year, we were confronted with a virus that in order to perpetuate its own existence, it would take from us our health, our money, our opportunity, our stability, our friendships in some cases, our families in some cases. It pitted us against one another at extreme political ends over masks, over lockdowns, over prioritization of vaccine distributions and access. COVID showed up one day and threatened to take our spirits as individuals, as communities, as global societies. It came for our optimism and it came for our resilience. Now, by and large, as a society, as a global society, I think we showed up. We held hands, figuratively, of course, because you couldn't really hold hands that would uh, violate the social distancing um, expectations. But, you know, we were holding hands figuratively. We were singing. We were banging pots and pans out of windows in acknowledgement of the hard work of the sacrifices being made by healthcare workers and first responders all the world over. Um, we wore masks. We stayed home. We stayed away from other people, our families. Life changed. Life, life as we knew it actually just stopped. And we dealt with it. Our optimism carried us through, as Joe Biden called it while on the campaign trail, a, quote, dark winter, end quote. But balancing our optimism is and must be a realism. Our understanding that optimistic though we may be, most big problems don't simply fix themselves. They require optimism that they will be resolved. And they also require objectivity about the facts and the circumstances confronting us. Uh, they require self-awareness regarding our objectivity or our lack thereof. They require an understanding about what we need to do to make our own circumstances better. And they require the ability to take risks and to lead. Now, I'm going to pause for a second here. Does this balance of optimism and realism sound familiar to you? It should. You may have heard me mention this before on the show. On November 9, 1965... A 41-year-old Navy A-4 fighter pilot named Jim Stockdale was flying a mission over North Vietnam when his aircraft was hit by enemy fire. Stockdale ejected from the plane. He parachuted into a small village, and there he was taken prisoner where he was badly beaten and tortured and then ultimately turned over to the North Vietnamese government. For the next seven and a half years, Stockdale was a prisoner of war. He was routinely tortured. He was denied medical attention, and then he was ultimately separated from the other prisoners and held in isolation until his release. His captors did not break him. What does Stockdale do in captivity? So he takes risks. He organizes a prisoner resistance, and he establishes a code of prisoner conduct that governed torture and secret communications and prisoner behavior. At one point, it becomes clear to him that he's going to be tortured into informing on his own uh, on his fellow prisoners. He is self-aware enough to know that every human being will ultimately break if they are tortured, and he refuses to let that happen, so he slits his own wrists. Stockdale, despite his circumstances, 
was so optimistic and so resilient that he was, as I said, ultimately separated from the other prisoners into a different facility pending his ultimate return to the United States. Fast forward to later in Stockdale's life, he is asked to describe prisoners that did not make it out alive, and he said, and this is all a direct quote, Oh, that's easy. The optimist. Oh, they were the ones who said, we're going to be out by Christmas. And Christmas would come, and Christmas would go. Then they'd say, we're going to be out by Easter. And Easter would come, and Easter would go. And then Thanksgiving. And then it would be Christmas again. And then they died of a broken heart. This is a very important lesson. You must never confuse faith that you will prevail in the end, which you can never afford to lose, with the discipline to confront the most brutal facts of your current reality, whatever they might be. Now, a minute ago, I mentioned going uh, climbing a mountain for $50,000 less than tuition. And I can analogize that to the COVID-19 impact of 2021. We may have been optimistic that we could climb the COVID mountain, despite sometimes, you know, big emotional setbacks and big logistics setbacks. And it appears that we've done so to a large extent, right? Numbers are going down in many areas. Vaccines are being administered all over the country. But as with any mountain trek, the higher you go, the closer you are to the summit, the more tired you become. And then ahead of you, there's still the descent. That slog down the mountain that can be so treacherous because you are so tired, because the burden of ascent, the emotional burden and the physical burden associated with reaching the peak is behind you because you think gravity should compel you to move more quickly than you should down the mountain back to your car or your home or whatever. Now, a good climber knows that all of these influences are working on their mindset, that cutting corners on the descent is an extremely dangerous way to do things, and that leadership, whether of yourself or others, until the trip is completely over and by completely, I mean you are safe and sound back in wherever you live, is a critical priority and needs to function at a very high level. There may be some light at the end of the COVID tunnel, but higher ed is not even close to out of the woods on this one. Remember, COVID's just one of our problems right now, albeit a huge one that higher ed is dealing with. To the extent that we need evidence in support of what I have just said, let's look at the Chronicle online, some headlines. University of New Haven student dies of COVID-19 complications. Two locked down campuses aren't allowing students to exercise outdoors. That's a conundrum, right? You're supposed to get fresh air, but you're also supposed to quarantine. Here's another one. Financial aid applications dipped among prospective freshmen and low-income students in, in California. Uh, yet another one. Howard Yu calls off men's basketball, basketball season citing viruses. Toll. Yet another, facing $10 million budget hole, SUNY Brockport cuts association memberships to save cash. UNC lets faculty teach remotely after students celebrated basketball win. Uh, the celebration of students over a big sports win should come as no surprise to anybody. Um, leaders, you, you know, you make the decisions that you have to make um, and you make them with your best judgment operating. I would say that if we open up the sports, and have the big sports games, we got to know there's going to be some partying that happens afterwards. Uh, we're talking about human beings after all. UNC Chancellor admonishes students for close contact celebration after basketball win. Citing spike in cases, Villanova tells students to stay home for two weeks. 
Uh, here's a good one, actually. At colleges with mask mandates, 92% of people wore masks properly indoors, but not so good one to follow. What influenced reopening at public four-year colleges? It came down to politics. I'm going to actually read from the blurb here uh, because it's, it's pretty powerful. Uh, states' sociopolitical features were the most significant influence on public four-year universities' decisions to open, uh, reopen last fall, according to a new paper. Private four-year institutions, in contrast, were influenced by both political features and the severity of the pandemic. Not a great conclusion um, for some schools there. The analysis posted Thursday on the Social Science Research Network builds on prior research that found that politics was a stronger factor than public health conditions in the decision to reopen. What does that do, by the way? It makes it really, really hard to lecture people about uh, social distancing and mask wearing, etc. if the politics are what are, is, is driving the decision in this case. Uh, we're we're going to post that research paper on the show notes uh, for this episode. Um, uh, here we go. Another headline. As campuses see cases rise, officials take aim at social gatherings. And I'll read the blurb. At many colleges, the return of students for the spring term has brought about an expected jump in the tally of on-campus COVID-19 cases. Several institutions have said publicly that the increases due not just to re-entry testing, but to social gatherings. At the University of Florida, the director of the testing program wrote on Wednesday that campuses had recently dropped by half, but that some of the reduction was lost by an increase in cases among students over the last week. The increase is driven by unmasked indoor large and small social gatherings centered around eating and drinking in the community. We are a college after all. In just one week, Villanova has already reached half of its fall semester case count. These numbers are not sustainable, wrote the university's vice president for student life on Tuesday. He added contact tracing has shown that cases come primarily from social activity, even small gatherings. Uh, And none of this is surprising, of course, right? Because after people were locked down for so long, uh, they were uh, strongly desiring of some community. At University of Pennsylvania, officials are warning students in fraternities and sororities that a completely disproportionate number of cases have been linked to chapters in-person social gathering, the Daily Pennsylvanian reports. In the last week of January, cases of COVID-19 increased by 100% from the previous week, the paper reported. Yet another headline, Duke says, if COVID-19 continues to spread, semester could be moved online. Here's the one that I like the most, the absolute the most. Uh, Liberty University's acting president apologizes for hosting unmasked snowball fight. Here's the blurb. The acting president of Liberty University apologized on Tuesday for hosting a snowball fight in which he and a crowd of students violated the campus's COVID-19 rules. Photos circulated on social media on Sunday and Monday showed a crowd of unmasked students lobbing snowballs at one another and huddling together to take pictures. The campus even promoted the event through its social media account. I messed up, the president said. We did not think through or communicate the need to wear facial coverings and remain six feet apart in compliance with state and campus rules, he said, adding that the university had taken down its online post celebrating the snowball fight. So, 
from pool scandal to snow scandal. Uh, University of Rochester apologizes for inviting donors to be vaccinated alongside employees. More than 200 staffers at Hillsdale College were vaccinated ahead of schedule once it lent a freezer. These, again, are all from the Chronicle. We will post this list on the show notes for you all. What do we see here? We see COVID-related operations issues, right? In some cases, the issue is the health and safety of the community. In others, it is the optics around how the university or the school is responding to COVID. There are COVID-related operations issues, period, in 2021. We're not getting away from that. Let's add to that the fact that we reopened higher ed in the midst of one of the worst times politically in the history of this country. So what's needed now more than ever in the higher ed business? Well, it's real leadership. It's leadership that knows how to model behavior and how to guide institutions and communities through recovery from pandemic impacts, from political impacts, from social impacts. Case in point, higher ed has suffered massive setbacks this year. No one can dispute that. But it's not the setback. It's the get back. It's about how you get up after being knocked down sometimes repeatedly and about how you use what you learned from getting knocked down so that you are able to stand stronger the next time around. It's not the setback. It's the get back. I heard that phrase from a man named Kenneth that I've known casually for about nine years or so, maybe 10 years. The, the circumstances of our meeting really were nothing extraordinary. Um, he works at the front desk of the building that I live in. So a little bit about Kenneth and me. Kenneth is a black man about my age, maybe a little bit older. Um, my kids are young. His kids are college age, just beyond. Um, but we have these great discussions, man to man, father to father about fatherhood, about ethos, about service, about the tough things going on in the country today, about the importance of standing tall, having character, doing the right thing, helping people simply because you can and thinking for yourself. I'll put this into context here. Kenneth works in his position, which requires him to provide service to other people. He helps with the front door. He helps with the packages. He helps with resident complaints about the building that we live in. Now, I'm not inside this man's head. I can't tell you what he's thinking at any given point in time. But we can all be judged by our actions, and our motives are reflected in the course of conduct that we pursue. Now, I look at Kenneth, and I watch, and I look at the smiling way that he performs all of the functions of his job, all of them, every single one. As I said, I've known Kenneth for almost 10 years now, and I have to say, I have never, ever once seen him be anything other than kind in the performance of his job. Never a snarky comment, never a grimace, nothing. And I'll tell you very directly, I'll put it right out there, there are plenty of self-entitled snarky people in my area, and there are plenty of people roaming around who have every reason to only be kind to other people who just can't seem to do it or who just refuse to do it. And yet, here's Kenneth, leading by example, a model of the right kind of human being. As I said, I've never seen him be anything other than perfectly polite. I'm sure he gets frustrated. How can he not? I get frustrated with what I see in that building at times. But in his spirit, optimism and resilience prevail. I don't believe Kenneth looks at his job as simply serving that, as simply that of serving other people. I believe, based on what I see from this man's actions, that Kenneth views his impact on others as so much greater than the simple act of grabbing a door or saying hello. For him, 
I believe it's about serving them the dose of kindness and optimism that he would want to receive himself from another person, the golden rule, we've heard it called. Hoping that if they open their eyes and pay attention, they will open themselves up to learning, to incorporating into their own behavior the things he is modeling for them and that they will someday pay it forward. It is the ultimate example of selflessness and kindness. I don't need you to be kind to me. If I am kind to you and you do it to somebody else, then I am a successful leader. I believe that Kenneth sees his ability to positively influence the lives and behavior of others, no matter what his job is. And he's absolutely right. He has never said this to me. I see it in his actions. I hear it in his speech. I sense it in his demeanor. And isn't that what higher ed is all about? The holistic development of a person so that they expand upon if they have it or they develop it if they don't have it. Greater curiosity, intellectual achievement, compassion, personal discipline, accountability, and yes, undying optimism that through their educational journey, they will be able to be in a position to make their lives and the lives of those around them better. And along with that, the resilience that will allow them to fail their way forward to making this world a better place and to make a greater impact on the lives of other people. As Kenneth says, it's not the setback, it's the getback. It's about how you recover. That's the ethos, that's the spirit, the discipline, the maturity, the mentality that we, as leaders in a higher education community, confronting the challenges of 2020 and 2021, that we owe it to our community to inculcate in a generation, whether that be a generation of students, faculty, or staff, our influence is not limited to any one portion of those populations. Now, as leaders, it's all too easy to get distracted by the conversations that are focused on self-interest. When we focus on the common goal, though, as higher ed leaders, that is when our real impact is felt. We will always be in a position to positively influence growth. We won't always win or succeed. There are always going to be faculty disputes. Somebody is going to be offended about something, right? That's higher ed. We just have to deal with it, okay? We're in an environment where we talk about exchanging ideas. Not all ideas are palatable to everybody. So dealing with people who are offended is part of our job. And sometimes we're going to have to pick a side on something. There's always going to be a protest over this thing or that thing or the thing that's in between. There will be demands of the market that impact our ability to bring money in and then to grow as an organization. The number of problems that we have as higher ed leaders is endless. That's what life is all about, right? It's about conflict. It's about resolution. It's about progress. It's about, it's about growth. As leaders, we have to recognize our ability to influence the conversation and to demonstrate by example, remember Kenneth now, how others are to be treated, how to be optimistic, how to be resilient and rise above the awkward situations, and how to constantly work to anchor back toward a common goal, education, for the purpose of making things better for oneself and one's world. Leaders, you have a rare opportunity before you. You are in a position to help lead by challenging people, by demonstrating kindness, by calling balls and strikes for what they are in a productive way that refocuses attention on the common traits that give us the promise of hard-earned success in the future. Optimism, resilience, kind, strong 
risk-taking leadership that gets us down the mountain safely and allows a generation with us now to pay it forward to generations to come. It's not the setback, it's the get back. And the right get back gets us back to where we need to be to maximize our potential in higher education to positively impact the world. A humble thanks to all for listening to us. We know your time is valuable. That you spend it with us means absolutely everything to us. A special thanks to Kenneth for your friendship and for the indelible and positive mark you are leaving on the lives of other people that enter your sphere and for your leadership by example, an example we can all learn from. Thank you to my partners at HRW for making this podcast possible. If you like what you heard, please subscribe. We are on most major podcast platforms and please share the word with your institution leadership, your colleagues, contacts, friends, family, etc. Word of mouth is what helps us to help the community. Follow us on social and feel free to retweet us when we post that a new episode is available. Um, I am mostly off social media, but we do have a uh, firm account and we do have a uh, show account. Um, So please check us out and uh, retweet us when you can. Find us on the interweb and on LinkedIn. Please hit us with your show ideas, recommendations, feedback, good, negative, or otherwise. We want it all. And if you know potential guests who are up and coming or established experts in an area that you think you want to hear us talk about, and we will talk about a lot, as you can see, it doesn't have to fit neatly into the legal box. Please let us know what you are thinking. Please remember that the good, tough conversations, the ones that we need to have to grow, are born of diverse perspectives represented in the dialogue, diverse cultures, backgrounds, experiences. If you know of someone who brings diversity in any form to the table, who you would want to hear from on a topic, let us know that. To reach us directly, DM us on the Twitter or send an email to ground at hrwlawyers.com and it goes straight to our producer, Aaron C. Larson. As always, Aaron, I am eternally grateful for your contribution for making the show happen. For now, thank you all again. This is Higher Ground. I am John Graff. That is a wrap.